So the reason why theirs is so high in their gut is because it's nature's way of kind of building their immunity. And, you know, coincidentally, that happens to be the same immune pathway that COVID affects. Start with food, right? To me, food is medicine. Like in the world, there's good and bad. Where, well, in your gut, there's good and bad too. So many conditions that, to me, could have been avoided, right, with preventive lifestyles just kind of made me even more passionate about really trying to help people, you know, live their best lives. All Things Con Amor is the pursuit of holistic health, wellness, happiness, love, the things that really set our soul on fire. Enjoy the ride. Welcome back and hello. If you are new here, my name is Stephanie Arnuk and I will be serving as your host on this journey. Today we have the incredible opportunity to learn from Dr. Christine Bishara and we are talking all things gut. This includes long-term weight loss, health advice, and the connection between your microbiome and COVID severity. Extremely exciting new research being broken down for you for the next hour. Dr. Bashara is the founder of From Within Medical and is board certified in internal medicine as well as integrative medical weight loss. She has over 20 years of clinical experience and currently practices in New York, New York. Let's get into it. I am so excited to have Dr. Bashara here with me today. She is a brilliant mind, and I actually found her through some of her research on Instagram. I was like, this sounds crazy, and I DM'd her about it, and she got back to me, and now here we are. So Dr. Bashara, what has your research really shown in regards to staying healthy during this pandemic? Thank you so much for having me, first of all. And yes, so let me uh, take a couple of steps back and talk to you a little bit about our research and how we came to it. So my background is internal medicine. I've been practicing internal medicine for uh, over 20 years. And recently, uh, a couple of years ago, I started my own practice and uh, was certified in not only internal medicine, but then decided to certify an in integrated medical weight loss because this is something that I've always been passionate about. Um, and so that's, that's where I've been right now. Um, and let me tell you a little bit about how we got to our research. My husband is a pulmonologist intensivist here in the New York City area. So when COVID first hit, you know, New York was hit very hard. And uh, he was basically like thrown onto the front lines right away. So in March, you know, a lot of people didn't really know uh, a lot about this virus. And, you know, he's been an intensivist for over 20 years as well. And they have a certain protocol that they have in the ICU, but he started noticing things were a little bit different in his patients that were getting hospitalized. And, and this is like patients who are in the ICU. So these are patients who have severe COVID infections, but he started noticing something interesting, which was, yes, we all know those patients that had the high risk factors, you know, the, the diabetics, the elderly, the patients with, um, you know, heart disease. But then he started noticing the subset of uh, individuals that really didn't have a lot of risk factors other than maybe a high BMI and they were young and they didn't really have any other conditions. So um, he started kind of just talking to me. We would talk every night about his patients and what tests they were, were, were doing and he mentioned that they were checking inflammatory markers uh, and they had very high inflammatory markers in particular um, interleukin-6, which we can talk about a little bit more. But um, so for those who don't know, I'll just kind of give a little summary. So interleukin-6 is one of those pro-inflammatory markers that the body 
um, releases in response to a perceived intruder or infection. And, you know, it's also, it's also like a cytokine. It's basically the same thing. So there's a lot of cytokines. Each one has a job. What we know is that interleukin-6 is a pro-inflammatory cytokine, which gets released. So he had seen that in his patients that were hospitalized with COVID, all of them had very, very high inflammatory markers, including interleukin-6. And actually in the beginning, um, one of the medications that they were using was an IL-6 inhibitor. So I started kind of just thinking about what he was saying and how it's re relationship to my, you know, patients that I saw in my office, which were overweight. And he mentioned, he said, everyone I have has a very high BMI and there must be something going on where they have these high inflammatory markers. So we started doing a little bit of research into number one, what was it about patients who had these risk factors, high BMIs and interleukin-6 levels? And it turns out that a subset of individuals who do have high BMIs seem to have this subclinical, which a lot of us know about subclinical inflammation, right? When somebody's inflamed, quote unquote, right? Um, what does that mean? Well, certain individuals have subclinically elevated IL-6 levels. And so what happens is when you're already high, your levels are already high and you're exposed to something like COVID, your body kind of goes into this like hyper-exaggerated response and it doesn't know how to handle it. So think of it more like um, the best way to explain it is if, uh, if you're on a camping trip, for example, and you plan ahead and you have everything ready, you have, you know, enough water, enough supplies, enough, you know, batteries, whatever that's needed. If an emergency happens, you're prepared, right? You're just going to deal with that emergency and everything's going to be fine. But on the flip side, if you're someone who probably didn't have supplies, didn't have enough water, didn't have enough thing planned for your trip, and then you, you encounter an emergency, you're not going to be able to handle that emergency as well as the other person did. And that's, this is exactly what happens with people who have higher than normal subclinical IL-6 levels, is that their body really is not able to like handle that sort of infection. So anyway, to make a long story short, we established that certain individuals had higher than normal IL-6 levels. But then on the flip side, we thought, well, what is it about kids, right? Like kids weren't really getting sick at all from COVID. And so we started thinking, well, what is it about children that's protecting them? And, you know, like me just having this passion for gut health and how it relates to weight loss and just overall health, I kind of started digging into their gut, their gut microbiome and just researching, you know, the their gut versus adults. And we know that children's guts overall are much healthier than adults' guts. And interestingly enough, uh, what we found was that the concentration of gut bacteria in children is very different from adults. And they have a, a much higher concentration of one specific gut flora called bifidobacterium. And many people have heard of bifidobacterium. It's present in a lot of probiotics and it's been very thoroughly researched along with lactobacillus. You know, like if, if you know anything about probiotics, those two are ones that you've heard of. And there's a reason why is because they're, they're immune modulators and they've been shown to be very anti-inflammatory, but not like they're, they're more immune, immune regulators. So we researched bifidobacterium and we found that in children, especially those under 10, their concentration of bifidobacterium ranges from 60 to 80% 
in their gut. So the, the main gut microbe in their gut is bifidobacterium. Whereas in adults, it starts to decline. So that level starts to decline slowly. Now, even more interesting um, about bifido is not only that, that they had higher levels, but we started digging into what it was about bifidobacterium, what it functions as, and it functions an, as an immune regulator. And believe it or not, it downregulates interleukin-6. So we started kind of putting this link, well, kids have high concentrations. We're seeing that in these ICU patients, they have very high IL-6 levels and it's downregulating, right? That's its job. And it's almost like it's nature's way of making sure that children develop an adaptive immunity, right? We're all born with innate immunity, but then as we grow, we also develop our adaptive immunity. So the reason why theirs is so high in their gut is because it's nature's way of kind of building their immunity. And, you know, coincidentally, that happens to be the same immune pathway that COVID affects. So it, it downregulates IL-6, but it upregulates two anti-inflammatory mediators, including IL-10. IL-10 is known as an anti-inflammatory mediator. We found that this, this can't be a coincidence, right? It's downregulating what we're seeing is high in these patients, but it's upregulating anti-inflammatory mediators. So we started doing a little bit more research into, into bifidobacterium, and we found that it's been used in numerous other modalities, uh, including patients with influenza, elderly patients with influenza who received vaccines and were given probiotics. They, they had much better results and less, less severe infections if they did develop influenza. It's also been used in cancer, uh, like cancer patients, and found to increase IgA levels, which IgA is usually one of those, those immunoglobulins that's actually like shows like a good immune response. So we found so much research on bifidobacterium. And so we published this research article at the time, you know, this was back in April when we did the research back in like literally a month after pandemic started. So we were hoping that if we get this out there, you know, we can administer probiotics to people who were at high risk, but you know, more importantly than probiotics is prebiotics, right? Is encouraging people to eat healthy because that's the best way to really build your gut and your gut bacteria. So I'm sorry, that was a little bit of a, I guess, a long response to your question, but I kind oh, of no. wanted to get a feedback. Don't apologize. That was, and it's so funny because I have looked at your research and I still learned a lot right there. That's so fascinating that this also has been seen in the flu and now you're bringing it back. First and foremost, I'm also so glad that your husband is okay. That's really incredible that he was on the front lines and that I know that the healthcare workers, especially like in the cities that were hit like New York, really, really suffered at the beginning. So that's amazing of him to have done that work and that he's still healthy and okay and that you're all healthy. So your idea for the bifidobacterium was really just seeing that difference between the kids and the people that were getting sicker and they had lower levels of it. Another small question that I just had was, do all people with higher BMIs have higher levels of IL-6 or is it just like a specific subset and those are the ones that were getting hit worse by COVID? That's actually a really good question. And I, I actually don't know whether everyone with a high BMI has IL-6 elevated, but what we do know is that IL-6 is, is elevated in a lot of conditions, including stress. It's like I said, it's an inflammatory marker, right? So it's definitely elevated in, in many conditions and it's probably elevated in, in heart disease and diabetics. And that's what's putting them at risk as well. So, and, and IL-6, I mean, it, it's, it's one of those tricky things where 
it's good and bad, right? It's good in the short term. It's like cortisol, right? It's, it's good in the short term because it does its job. It's an acute responder. And so if your levels are not subclinically elevated all the time, it does what it's supposed to do. You have some kind of intrusion or infection or whatever it is, it, you know, it's released, it goes to the site, it, 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 you know, initiates that inflammatory response that the body can respond properly. And then it goes down. But what we did see was that yes, patients with high BMIs in general tend to have higher levels because of gut inflammation. And this is really where, you know, we were we're kind of focusing on is that gut inflammation predisposes someone to more systemic inflammation. And reason being is, you know, you have your gut and your gut part of part of the job of your gut is to maintain gut integrity, right? Which means it's keeping what's supposed to stay in the gut in the gut and your body absorbs the nutrients and whatever it needs from the foods that we eat. But technically, you know, toxins are not supposed to be released into the bloodstream. And so what happens over time, if you have gut inflammation, it, it interferes with the gut integrity. And then the lining starts to get weaker. And those barriers that have been present start to get, you know, a little bit looser and weaker. And then toxins are released into the bloodstream. And then that's what happens. And you develop more systemic inflammation. So that's what we're seeing is that when you have a high BMI, most likely you also have some form of gut inflammation. Now, although... Children are, you know, for the most part protected. We did find that certain kids, as you know, are getting this post-inflammatory system condition is similar to Kawasaki's where they're getting this like post-inflammation. And we found that there are certain risk factors and that includes oddly enough, children who are born premature because their gut has not completely developed or children that are born by cesarean section, because, you know, when you're born through your mom's vaginal canal, you become colonized with a lot of the bacteria that that is there. So that's another risk factor. Children who are overweight can also be at higher risk. But oddly enough, we also found that children who were not breastfed were at slightly higher risk as well, because bifidobacterium is present in breast milk as well. There's a certain strain called bifidobacterium brevae which is the most abundant bacteria in breast milk. And we found that when children consume breast milk, they have much higher levels of bifidobacterium and in particular that specific strain. And, you know, these bacteria, what they do is they help to strengthen the gut lining. They allow our body to make short chain fatty acids, which again, work on the gut integrity. So a lot of these factors kind of like mix together to help us with our immunity. So um, it's fascinating. I mean, we don't know everything about gut health. And I think I think it's one of those things that's going to explode in the next five to 10 years, but yeah. I love seeing all the the puzzle pieces fall together. That's one of my favorite things about medicine is really the fact that it originates all the way back from the way you were born. And the fact that when you were born in a certain way, your mother is giving you all of these ways to handle disease and inflammation innately. So that's, that's really fascinating again to me that you put those puzzle pieces together. Well, I, I researched the puzzle pieces. I mean, those were kind of put together already. Yes, but you, but yeah. you, yeah, you, you linked them to COVID, which I think was something that everyone has been scrambling to do. Yeah, it's interesting. When we first published it, it didn't really get a lot of traction. I think, I guess there was this fear that, you know, we don't want to kind of like assume things. But oddly enough, since our since our research was published back in May of 2020, there have actually been a couple of other research studies that have, that have validated what we've said. There was one in, and, and you know, I want to, I want to, um, I guess, clarify that 
you know, in medicine, right, in science, the best way to prove a theory is to back it up, right, clinically. And so in our study, it was based on previous research, we weren't able to go into the hospital and test this because at the time there was severe lockdown and really no one was allowed anywhere. So our study is based on a review of previous research. And then we kind of put it together, like you said, linking it to COVID. And this is why we're um, working on a clinical trial to kind of back up what we said in our research. But since then, there actually have been a couple of clinical um, studies uh, kind of validating this. Um, one came out of Italy in August of 2020, a few months after our research, that showed patients who uh, were diagnosed with COVID were hospitalized. And this was uh, this was conducted by um, a Dr. DeSimone, who's actually uh, like a, a gut a gut specialist and uh, like an authority on gut health. He gave patients, they had two subsets of patients, um, one that received the typical COVID treatment protocol, and then another set that received the same treatment protocol, in addition to uh, very high dose probiotics containing the bifidobacterium strain. And then they followed these patients and they found that the ones who received both the protocol, the standard protocol, plus the probiotics had an eightfold decrease in their symptoms overall, but especially respiratory symptoms. And not one of, one of those, not one of those uh, patients uh, needed to be ventilated, um, which is interesting. That study was uh, a really, you know, like a good one too. But then another study coming out of Hong Kong, just this January, 2021, they studied patients also in the hospital. They studied stool samples. Of, of these patients, and they found exactly what we said. COVID severity is linked to a gut dysbiosis. And one of the bacteria that they found that these specific patients were also deficient in was bifidobacterium. So I think, I mean, personally, I think this is the missing link. I mean, I know there are a lot of other factors and our immune system is so complex, but, you know, I think it doesn't hurt to take a probiotic with bifidobacterium. Like probiotics are not lethal. If anything, they're, you know, they're helpful, but I think it's more important to stress eating healthy, right? And eating prebiotics. So we can talk a little bit about the differences, but prebiotics really are the plant-based fibers that are present in fruits, vegetables, and things like legumes, because those actually provide the fiber to help your beneficial gut bacteria thrive. So I would say, let's focus on that first and then also probiotics. Okay. Wow. I think that honestly, in my opinion, a big reason that your research might not have gotten a lot of traction was because at the beginning, everyone was so focused on the cure. And I think that a lot of medicine can sometimes be very focused on symptomology and finding whatever drug it is that's going to heal the person. And so they kind of forget to backtrack and look at, well, what is it that's causing these symptoms to begin with? What are the ways that we can prevent these symptoms to begin with? And so that was another reason that I was super interested in your research and love the way your mind works. And we all know that gut health is being shown more and more, like you said, it's going to explode over the next few years and the way it affects every part of the body. Can we just really quickly for anybody listening right now that has no idea what gut health means, can we break down what it means for the lining to be inflamed? Like how the gut works with the bacteria, and then we can go into ways of really taking care of it. Absolutely. And I think, I think you're right. I think a big reason is that so many focus on the endpoint, right? Um, which is treatment. And this is actually probably why I left traditional medicine. I mean, I love traditional internal medicine and that's what I practiced for, for all these years, but 
we weren't, and it wasn't even like as, as a lack of trying. I mean, it was just, we didn't have time to focus on preventive measures. It was like, okay, you have this patient with chronic conditions and now you need to focus on treatment. And it was something that always really was a passion of mine is like, well, why not kind of go the other way, right? And, and work on the root cause of disease. So I, I agree with you wholly. And I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that this this gets traction. And, and I think, like you said, gut health is going to really explode. But to answer your question um, in terms of um, gut inflammation and kind of just keeping that under bit under control is we really need to start with food, right? To me, food is medicine. And so we really have to teach that what we're eating right now as Americans, and this, this really might be another reason why, you know, we were hit so hard with, you know, this pandemic is because our obesity rates are rising every year. I mean, in 2000, I think 30% of the U S population was considered obese. And now, you know, 20 years later, it's, it's 42% and it's rising. So there's gotta be a reason why. And, and to me, I think it's definitely related to the inflammatory diet that we're eating, which is affecting our gut. Like, like I said, we're, it's affecting our gut lining. And so we kind of have to reverse that and really think of food as medicine first and foremost. And I, I, you know, I tell this to my patients who come and see me for weight loss is you really have to focus on plant-based and, and they've done so many studies on this, right? Like the Mediterranean diet, which is mostly a plant-based diet. That's actually been the one factor that has decreased mortality the most by 50% like not one medication, not any other diet has shown to do that. So, and, and, you know, and then you look and you say, well, what is it about the Mediterranean diet that makes it so special? Um, and you know, there's, have you ever heard of the blue zones? I actually haven't, if you could no? break okay. that down I'll, for me. Yeah, yeah. So there are these five regions in the world where even though they're not all in the Mediterranean, three of them are in the Mediterranean area, but they all have something in common, which is a similar diet to the Mediterranean diet. And these blue zones, these five regions in the world have the highest concentration of people who live to be hundred centenarians. So they've studied, they've studied their lifestyle and what it is about their lifestyle that you know, helps them to live to a hundred. And they found that they all have a very similar, like several factors. And I'll go into that a little bit, because I think that really makes a difference in gut health and gut inflammation, but they mostly eat plant-based foods. So they're eating, you know, a lot of beans, a lot of fruits, a lot of vegetables, very little red meat. I think, you know, I think the, the, the amount of red meat that most of them are eating is like less than once or twice a month where they're having meat, chicken, meat, red meat, all of that. Some pescetarian options. So they're eating a very little fish a couple of times a week, not on a daily basis. They're also, they all live in very tight knit communities where their environment makes a huge factor. They're very active in, in their daily habits. They walk a lot, but tight knit social community makes a huge difference as well. Um, so you have to start kind of thinking like, well, you know, there's, there's a reason why, right. These re I mean, they all have this, this thing in common. So we need to start adapting that we need to start decreasing the amount of processed foods that we eat, you know, eating more socially. And I don't think we do that as, as Americans as much. Those are the definite factors that I focus on in terms of gut inflammation, but you know, you have to kind of balance, right? Like in the world, there's good and bad where, well, in your gut, there's good and bad too. There's good gut bacteria and there's bad gut bacteria. And if you feed your body with a lot of processed foods and what I call gut disruptors, and we can talk a little bit more about that as well, then you're going to have that bad gut bacteria thrive more than the good. And unfortunately that affects the, the feedback loop from your gut to your brain um, and the satiety center. So then you're, you're, you know, you're constantly seeing these people who have these risk factors 
always hungry. Well, you're always hungry because there's like that inflammatory response and it hasn't, it, that loop hasn't been shut down. So there's a lot of factors, but yeah, I, I, I say definitely focus on what you eat first, um, which is so important. And you know, there, there are a lot of other factors, but I think for people just to start, definitely start with, you know, what we just talked about, like plant-based because those do affect your gut lining. You had another question and, and maybe repeat it if I didn't address it. <laughs> I, th- I think you did address it. I think my question was really just making it clear, like how the gut works for the people that have never heard of gut health before. And and you yeah. did that in terms of describing that there are the good gut bacteria and there are the bad gut bacteria. In my mind, the way I kind of depict it as like a tunnel that goes through your body. And it's, it's a tunnel where it's as if you have built a wall. And if you have all of these processed foods, as you were saying, that's going to make holes in the wall. And then all of the stuff that's not supposed to be able to get into your body is going to get in through those holes. So I think that just clarifying that term for people that have no idea what gut health means is really helpful in terms of them being able to picture what it is that's going on inside of their body. You explained it really well, actually. And that's exactly what's going on is that you have these like really tight barriers uh, in your gut. And if you're constantly causing like uh, an inflammation, well, those barriers start to loosen, like you said, make holes and then stuff starts to escape into the bloodstream, which you don't want there. And your body's smart and your immune system is actually like a big portion of it is in your gut. So your immune system responds like what's going on here. This is not something I, you know, in the bloodstream, right? It's not something I've seen before. So then it initiates that, that response. And unfortunately then the body starts attacking itself. And this is actually another um, risk factor for autoimmune disease that we're thinking too is gut health. So gut health has been linked to so much. I mean, uh, autoimmune, even uh, conditions that are like neurological conditions, such as Alzheimer's, they're now starting to see a link between patients who have low gut diversity and development of Alzheimer's. So it's, it's, you know, it's definitely, there's definitely a lot that's going to research in the next few years in, on gut health. In terms of, I know you were talking a lot about how the foods that you eat are really what makes the biggest impact on your gut health. And I know we were discussing the plant-based and the Mediterranean diet. Can we just list a few specific foods that you would really recommend people be getting in to their meals every day? Like whether it's broccoli or whether it's just like specific, because I know a lot of people will generalize and say, oh, well, yeah, you need to eat plant-based and you need to eat fermented foods. But then I, I personally don't really know where to look in a grocery store for the fermented foods. So if you could just like list, I think a combination of things that you would really recommend people work into adding to their diet? Because I think it's also easier for people to look at their health in terms of adding things rather than continuously telling themselves, oh, I have to cut out the sugar and I have to cut out Oreos and I have to cut out all of the processed fake cereals and all of the things that come in plastic. Yeah, absolutely. So in terms of vegetables and fruits, I would say, I mean, honestly, all are good, except for the really starchy ones like potatoes, for example, like sweet potatoes aren't bad. And, and again, everything in moderation, but what is shown to be really like really good prebiotics, which are really like rich in, in, in prebiotic fibers are things like asparagus, onions, uh, artichokes. Um, those are really good places to start. You know, I know a lot of people don't tolerate beans as much. So see how your body responds. You can, you can definitely introduce like lentils, uh, black kidney bean, uh, black and kidney beans, uh, things like that, and see how you tolerate, but definitely 
definitely cruciferous, a lot of cruciferous vegetables. I, I mean, I, I, I can't say anything is bad, right? But the ones that are really rich in prebiotic fibers are, you know, like asparagus, uh, artichokes, onions. Those are like the ones that have been shown to be really good. In terms of fruits, I would say, you know, less fruits than vegetables. But again, that's where your your main sugar source should be from natural natural fruits, right? Because not all sugar is the same. Blueberries are great because berries in general are great because they, they're less sweet than other fruits. But, you know, I, I, I feel like the five servings a day of fruits and vegetables is probably not even enough. I mean, we should really be getting like seven to nine, but you know, that's a little overwhelming for somebody who's starting out. Right. So like my intention is not to overwhelm. It's really just to teach. And because I think when you're taught something, then it's so much easier to apply it. So it's just to teach good lifestyle habits. So, you know, if you haven't had any fruits and vegetables at all, then start with one or two a day and kind of work your way up in terms of fermented foods. Um, and that, that's actually another uh, factor that was present in the blue zones. They eat fermented foods. So with fermented foods, I would say, look at things like yogurt with live cultures, not the low fat, you know, yogurt on the supermarket shelf, that's going to have a lot of sugar. So you want like organic yogurt that is full milk, but has live cultures or another great option is kefir, which um, I know a lot of people are dairy and sensitive, dairy sensitive, excuse me. But when you have something like kefir that has so many live cultures, the, the live cultures actually cancel out the, the dairy. So a lot of people will tolerate it. That's definitely something to also try to include. Other fermented foods include like pickled foods. Again, like in the Mediterranean, they eat a lot of pickled food. Things like kombucha, which is really good too. Anything with live cultures really is what you want to try to incorporate in your diet. The other ones are miso. Like people, like Japanese people will cook with miso. Also has a lot of probiotics. I call them edible probiotic. So yeah, I mean, if, if, you know, again, it's, it's like that moderation. So you're slowly starting to incorporate it. I would say if you can include fermented foods, like at least two to three times a week in your diet and kind of work from there and see how you respond. Um, it's a great start. That's wonderful advice. And I, I love that you brought up the whole people who are lactose intolerant. Like I am very, very dairy sensitive, mm-hmm. but I do have yogurt. And like you said, because the, there are the active cultures in the yogurt that do the digesting for me, it doesn't bother me at all. So it's funny when my friends are like, how are you having that? And I'm like, because it digests itself. So I don't have to. Exactly. Um, Right. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Um, you know, it's, it's not ice cream, right? Ice cream's not going to do the same thing. So yeah, I mean, it, it, dairy matters, like really hard cheeses are probably like the next thing. If, if you're able to tolerate like you said, like live, live cultured yogurt or kefir, but you know, everyone's different. And so you kind of have to see where your body is and, and how it responds to certain foods. But yeah, I agree with yeah. you. Do you think there's a big difference between the plant-based yogurts that have probiotics and the the whole milk, like you were saying? Because I also, I try to avoid dairy in general, just because dairy is kind of inflammatory. Uh Um, So, and I know they've been coming out with a lot of like almond-based or cashew-based yogurts with probiotic cultures in them. Do you think there's a big difference if I were to choose the- I don't think so. Yeah, I don't think so. I think whatever you tolerate and like, you know, the problem with also like vegan diets are great, but I think a lot of times, like there's so much processed foods and vegan food too, right? Like it's so processed yes. and so that, that, that's what we're, the goal is to avoid that. So yeah, anything too processed is something to stay away from, but yeah, I have like the cashew yogurts with the cultures too. I'm not vegan. Um, I eat like everything, but yeah. a few times a year I'll do Lent fast. Um, I'll do a vegan fast for oh, during cool. the time of Lent and I, and I, 
Like I feel great. I just, I personally, I don't think, I don't think many people can do vegan hundred percent of the time because they have to be very meticulous in making sure that they get in enough um, nutrients. Mm-hmm. And I think most people aren't able to be that meticulous. I mean, if you are, that's great. But, um, you know, like we saw in the blue zone or the Mediterranean diet is they, they do have a very small percentage of animal protein, uh, you know, but, you know, some people are able to be meticulous in their intake, but I, I love doing vegan, you know, a couple of times a year. Um, so yeah, that's when I incorporate the, the, the cashew and the almond, uh, yogurts and they're great. Okay. Yeah, they are. I honestly, I cook for the most part pretty plant-based and vegan just because I don't like handling raw meat. It freaks me out just a little bit. And so then when I'm out at restaurants or when I'm eating at home, that's when I like reincorporate the meats and things like that. I think another issue with veganism in our country is that our, this is a whole other topic, but our soil lacks a lot of the nutrients that would normally be in all of those foods. And so because of that, then you do need that extra supplementation of certain things. But Absolutely. Like I, and I think that that's another reason why we have this like horrible, like problem with, you know, people being so nutrient depleted, like you said, the soil is not as rich. So I agree with you. To continue though, because I know the majority of my listeners are not going to be vegan. What would be the best way to really detox our gut after a couple of cheat days, whether it's like a really heavy processed meal or just like, you know, I love some Shake Shack. You, it does leave you feeling like a little off. So what do you think is a really good way to kind of reset our body after something like that? Totally. And I want everyone to know, like, I'm not perfect. Like I've had my Shake Shacks and I love Shake Shack. And I've, you know, like, I, I also feel like your body, if you feed it well, like 80% of the time, like that 20% of the time where you're not, you know, and you're cheating, like it's fine. Your body can tolerate that. Uh, it's when it's reversed, right? 80% processed and 20% not that it's bad. So, um, but yeah, so what I, I, I'm a big proponent of intermittent fasting and that, that could probably be a whole nother podcast, but you know, our body needs rest, right? Um, our bowels need rest. Um, and so I, what I usually do when someone has a cheat day or when I have a cheat day, I'll do like a fast the next day and kind of give my body that chance to digest the foods, right. That I had, I hydrate with, you know, like six, eight cups of water, because that's going to help everything kind of like leave your system a little faster. But so what I usually do is I'll do like either an 18 hour or a 24 hour. I mean, 24 is a little bit extreme, but I've been doing fasting for so long that like I'm used to that. But for someone who's new to fasting, um, you know, try like not eating for 16 hours after your last meal the night before, whatever you had, you know, your shake shack or whatever, just to give your body that time of rest um, and your bowels that time of rest, because your body has other functions that it has to perform. And if it's focused on digesting, then it's not going to do the other stuff. So, and you know, they've, they've done so many studies on fasting and they found that it really stimulates something called autophagy, which is basically like a recycling of cells. It's like your body going through spring cleaning and getting rid of any extra cells that it doesn't need either that are, there might be dysfunctional or just, you know, cells die. Right. And so it's just like, a, it's, it like speeds up the process. And then it, and then you end up having like the really good cells and the meaningful cells left over. So that's why I really, I really recommend fasting. So that's what I would do. There are certain types of foods that like, say you had like something really salty or, you know, like whatever, like you have a little bit of bloating and water retention. There are certain types of foods that I'll usually recommend. And those are foods usually high in potassium because what happens is you're retaining water because you, you know, like salt retention, right? So sodium retention. So if you eat foods that are high in potassium, it kind of like counteracts that, right? Things like, like bananas, like what I usually do is I'll do like a, whatever, a fast 
And then that day I might just have some fruits and vegetables, like just a, you know, like a plant-based meal. Bananas are really good, like high potassium, things like cantaloupes and honeydew uh, melons are also high in potassium. Avocados are really good too. So like those those are the kind of foods you want to do. And obviously hydration and, you know, exercise too, obviously, but those, those are what I would recommend as like a good uh, post cheat detox. Okay. That's awesome. I, yeah, I, we did have a few questions about bloating. So thank you for addressing that. I hope everyone has their notes out because I know it's, it's the worst feeling in the world when you like feel two times bigger than you actually are and you don't know how to get rid of it. So listing those foods, that was super helpful for our listeners. And so moving a little bit away from the short-term inflammation and bloating and moving on towards long-term, how that will cause weight gain and all of that. What do you think think is your biggest recommendation for really long-term weight loss? Not like the quick fix, but the losing the weight and keeping it off. Right. Right. And I think so many of us have this issue, right? So I've kind of, what I do in, in my practice is I break it down for, for patients. So there are a few goals that we'd like to reach. One is decrease inflammation, right? To decrease gut inflammation, which in turn decreases systemic inflammation. So how do we do that? So we do that by kind of what we spoke about, mostly plant-based. So I usually recommend like a 70-30 ratio. So your meals, if you're looking at your plate, for example, your meal should be 70% plant-based and then 30% other, so protein or carbohydrates. Um, And that kind of really starts to decrease your gut inflammation. And what that happens is, believe it or not, decrease in gut inflammation actually helps with your entire body's feedback loop to the brain and to the satiety center. So once we have that in order, then we start focusing on nutrients, right? So, you know, a lot of us, like we've seen with COVID, a lot of people are vitamin D deficient or deficient in a lot of other vitamins that we don't even know about. And, you know, I I always tell patients, if, if you're feeling hungry all the time and you're getting adequate calories, your body's not hungry for food. It's actually hungry for nutrients. And our body is like, it's, I mean, it's amazing, but our body is so equipped for survival. I mean, that's its number one goal. And so it'll do whatever it needs to do to survive, right? So if you're feeling hungry all the time, um, you know, think about getting some blood work done to check your vitamin D levels, check your magnesium levels. Those are really important. And so many of us are deficient in them and your body will crave certain types of foods, unfortunately bad foods too, to try to kind of replete what it's missing. So that's another thing that I really focus on, but more importantly than that, even, you know, our gut brain access is so strong. And again, we crave certain things that help to make important neurotransmitters, for example. And, you know, we have like four main neurotransmitters, um, acetylcholine, serotonin, dopamine, and GABA, right? And believe it or not, they have precursors. Their precursors are a lot of them are in the diet. So I'll give you like a couple of examples, like serotonin, for example, everyone knows serotonin helps with mood, right? It helps with stability, but it also helps to keep us calm. And the precursor for serotonin is tryptophan. Well, we can get tryptophan in our diet from certain foods. Bananas are very rich in tryptophan, like edamame, turkey, pineapples, nuts. Those are really high in tryptophan. And so when we're eating foods that are rich in the precursors, then we're helping our body kind of replenish that naturally. That's one, right? Then we have acetylcholine, for example, the choline, I don't know if you've taken this yet in biochemistry, but the choline portion of acetylcholine is, is fat. It's a lipid, right? And so if you're deficient, for example, in acetylcholine, what's going to happen? Your body 
body's going to crave fatty foods. And, you know, unfortunately you might be craving like fried and like not good fatty foods. So you want to try to replenish it with good fats, like avocados or, you know, salmon, things like that. So I definitely, that's one thing that I, I focus on with weight loss. Um, and you know, it's, it's like that old school is like, Oh, just cut calories and you'll be fine. But you know, we're seeing that like patients rebound. And the reason why they rebound is they haven't addressed that underlying inflammation or nutrient deficiency. So that's really what I try to focus on. The other thing with weight loss that I really try to focus on as well is because we're all human is prepare ahead, right? Plan ahead um, and know that you might hit, uh, you know, obstacles, but if you're prepared, right. I mean, you're in medical school, you know, this, right. What happens? You make a to-do list. You're so much more efficient, because you've written down what you need to work on and you do it. And it's kind of the same thing. I mean, when you're building a new lifestyle for yourself, you have to plan ahead. And so I tell patients all the time, make a daily log, write down what you plan for the day, plan on, you know, whatever, eating healthy and making this, for example, but it makes such a huge difference when you plan ahead. But also on the flip side of that is there are going to be days where you might cheat and that's okay. I think a lot of people see those cheat days and then they give up, but I'm saying just redirect again, just consistency is so much more important, right? And in anything, I mean, there's ups and downs, right? So you can't expect anything to have like a completely upward trajectory in life. Like it just doesn't work that way. So that's another thing that I really focus on is just kind of be consistent. And when you're not one day, then just redirect. So those are kind of what I would recommend as like a good way to start for weight loss. I absolutely agree with all of this. Those were super helpful tips. And it was so funny last night, I realized I have read almost 400 pages of a textbook because we broke it down into like four to five page sections. And there's no way I ever would have in my life read an entire textbook if we hadn't done it in that matter. So really, I guess, breaking down your meals, like you said, and planning them out. Something that really helped me was I love snacking and figuring out snacks that I could eat and still feel like I'm happily snacking and not like ruining my body was super helpful. I went from doing a lot of like chips and salsa. I love chips and salsa for no reason, maybe all the salt, but switching that over to like sliced cucumbers and hummus and things like that. I think that is uh, my little note in terms of adding those good things in. Yeah. I mean, there's nothing wrong with chips and salsa, right? I mean, it's well, there's something wrong with it when you're going through like a bag every three days and they're like, they're, they're like the family size chips and I live alone. So (laughs) yeah, I mean, everything in moderation, obviously. Yeah. My issue was the moderation. So another thing that helped me was like planning out portion sizes. So when I would get a full big family bag size of chips, I would split it into Ziploc bags or like containers. So when I would take a snack to school, if I was studying, I wouldn't have the entire like 2000 calorie bag to run through. I would have like a normal serving of it. That's Um, really smart. Actually. I think that's something that a lot of people can do is even if you buy like a big bulk of something, separate it for days. Yes. Because otherwise it's so hard to tell, especially with the nutrient deficient foods like that, where like it's not going to make you feel full no matter how much of it you eat. Absolutely. I know. I think that's a really great tip actually to do that. And then I know we talked a lot about how important magnesium and potassium are, but if we really just can't find that diversity in the diet, especially at first, uh, what supplements do you think you would really recommend? What I've seen as like the two most common supplements and minerals that uh, I find a lot of people deficient in and 
probably a lot more so these days because a lot of people are indoors. Number one is vitamin D. I literally in my practice, I would say more than 75% of my patients that are not already on vitamin D when I check their levels are low. And you know, you have to also like be mindful of the lab values and the lab values. Some, some lab values say under 30 is low, but I think even 30 is low, um, like, or 35, like my goal is to get people between 45 and 70 as their vitamin D levels. And a lot of studies have shown that vitamin D plays a huge role in so many factors in gut health, um, cancer prevention, even. So that's one that I really recommend. Um, and a lot of people say, well, I don't know what my vitamin D levels are. What I would say is, you know, the next appointment that you have with your doctor, um, definitely have that as part of the, you know, the ones that you check. But in the meantime, I don't think it's bad to start at a low dose of vitamin D3. Like I usually say, you know what, start at a thousand and then check your levels. I mean, there is vitamin D toxicity. So you have to be careful, but I don't think a thousand um, units is going to do anything. So that's, that's definitely one that I, I usually recommend. Another one that I, I really think a lot of people are also deficient in is magnesium. And, you know, the problem with magnesium is because the levels that we check, the blood tests that we check are checking for extracellular magnesium. A lot of times it doesn't even show up as deficient until we're really deficient because most magnesium is intracellular um, because it's, it's involved in so many different biochemical, um, you know, reactions. I mean, you, you probably are like, have you done biochemistry yet? Yeah. I took biochemistry yeah. in the fall. And right now we're actually talking about, um, my physio exam on Monday is all about the hormones. So we okay. were learning about yeah. how vitamin D is necessary for your gut to be able to uptake calcium, which you need for your exactly. bones. Like you said, exactly. it's super interconnected, exactly. but yeah, the magnesium is a cofactor in like so many Everything. essential yeah, exactly. exactly. And so many of us are deficient because like you said, the soil is not as rich as yes. it used to be. And so, especially also like a lot of athletes I'll see with magnesium deficiency because they're running or they're doing whatever, and they're not replenishing. So, okay. um, I, my, my, my thing with magnesium is this, like for most people, it's fine, but you know, you definitely don't want to just start popping magnesium pills because, you know, patients with diminished renal function, for example, might have an issue with getting rid of excess magnesium. I mean, most people, you know, if you take in too much magnesium, you'll get rid of it, whatever your body doesn't need. But you know, that's something that I would say, definitely check with your doctor. And I, I, I also give patients magnesium supplements. So those two are like my real favorites. The others are, you know, probiotic, like take a probiotic, especially ones containing lactobacillus and bifidobacterium. But I, you know, I feel like if you're eating really healthy, then prebiotics are probably enough. But like you said, there's just our food sources now are just not as rich in nutrients as they used to be. Yeah. So, they're, they're not what they should be, which is really sad and something that I hope to try to work on within my lifetime. And then in terms of the probiotics, I know there's so many on the market and there's so many yeah. different dosages. So we did say look for um, bifidobacterium and lactobacillus, but is there like a specific brand that I can link somewhere for people? I think on your Instagram page, they can find a few yeah. good ones, right? Yeah. I mean, like since our study came out, I've had so many people ask me like, well, do you recommend, I have a few that are in, um, I have a, like an Amazon link in my Instagram, um, mm -hmm. that I recommend that so you can just, uh, people can go there and look. Um, and those are the ones that I kind of like studied and looked at to see the ingredients, but also how it's made and how it's mm -hmm. absorbed because probiotics are tricky. You know, when you're taking a probiotic, you want to make sure it gets to your colon, right? But yeah. like, because, you know, if it's not getting there, what's the point? Mm -hmm. So there are 
like kind of two schools of thought with probiotics. There are the ones that are really high dose. They measure them in like CFUs, which are colony forming units. Like one school of thought is if you get a probiotic that has a really high CFU, um, those colony forming units, they're more likely to like be a lot that survive that passage, right. To your, to your colon. And, you know, factors that help that is like taking it on an empty stomach, for example, so that it doesn't have that delayed, you know, whatever sitting in the stomach because there's other stuff in there. So what I recommend is, you know, take it on an empty stomach and an empty stomach so that it makes it to the colon quickly. Not all brands are made the same. A lot have like, if you're going to take the pill form, it should be a higher dose because of the fact that, you know, you want to ensure that it's getting to where it needs to get to. There's also like the second school of thought with probiotics is that they have like these packets, right? Refrigerated packets where you actually mix with water right before you drink. And that those are the spores. And so when you're mixing it with water, then it increases the likelihood that these are going to get into your lower GI tract. So those are really things that I look for. Like if you're going to do the refrigerated, just make sure like they're, they're good quality ones. But yeah, those are, those are kind of the two things that I really say to focus on. Okay. Thank you for the whole taking it in the morning, empty stomach, because I never really knew like if you were supposed to take them with food or how they were going to get um, where they needed to go. I mean, a lot of people take them like right before they sleep early dinner, for example, you know, like okay. you five or six and then you're sleeping at 11, you know, then you can take them right before you sleep. But I find like it's easier in the morning, like on an empty stomach. Right. Yeah. I mean, that's how I take my vitamins. Um, cause I do take, I take a vitamin D and I, I started a vitamin C with zinc because I had heard about yeah. how zinc was super helpful in the inflammatory response pathways and helping in, like, if I were to have gotten COVID, um, God forbid. And yeah. I take a B12 because like I said, the, the majority of my food is plant-based and I know that's something that people who are vegan tend to lack. And so right. I take that for, for energy levels. So you're going to take vitamin C and a probiotic. Um, you want to separate the time a little bit because vitamin C is uh, like an antioxidant. It's acidic. So sometimes it can affect the efficacy of a probiotic. So oh, I didn't know that. Yeah. Yeah. Like all like, yeah, like a lot of antioxidants um, can have that effect. So definitely take it like take them at a different time, like probably okay. probiotic first. What do you think are some symptoms you really see in people who are nutrient deficient, especially in terms of the connection to the gut brain axis? I know we discussed yeah. that, like you crave yeah. certain foods when you're missing those neurotransmitters because you don't right. have the precursors in the food, but what are like the ways it really manifests that, you know, something is off. What I find a lot of people complain about is fatigue, you know, again, because we're kind of going back to those mineral depletions, right? Like magnesium is a big one one, as you know. So a lot of people come and say like, you know, I'm so tired. I don't know why I'm so tired. I mean, there are a lot of things that cause fatigue, but that's usually like the one thing I'll start looking at is nutrient deficiencies. Um, another thing is people will start saying like, I recently just started gaining weight and I'm like really hungry and I don't know what's going on. That's another factor that you might have like a gut dysbiosis, especially after say you were sick and you had antibiotics. I mean, antibiotics kind of deplete that, you know, good good gut bacteria too. So that's another symptom that I see a lot. Difficulty sleeping is another one. You know, we have, like I said, the four neurotransmitters, serotonin and GABA help with sleep balance. And if you're not getting enough food that are rich in GABA or that are rich in serotonin, you're going to have a problem sleeping. So that's also another thing that I'll see in patients. Weight gain, that's kind of just like out of the blue or fatigue or difficulty sleeping, or like you said, craving certain foods. 
I really do um, like a thorough kind of like investigation when someone says to me they're craving specific types of foods. You know, I'll do, well, I, I, like as part of all my wellness exams, I'll do like a neurotransmitter questionnaire to see what, number one, what your dominant neurotransmitter is because we're, we all, we all have different personalities. And I think for the most part, like we're dominant in one or two, and that kind of dictates how we function as humans, but then a lot of times you can become deficient. And so I kind of look into that and then address those nutrient deficiencies. But yeah, I mean, it's, you know, like a lot of times it's subtle. It's like this fatigue, lack of sleep, and people don't really connect it to diet. Whereas I see all of these symptoms and right away try to connect them to diet. That is so cool. And I I love that even though I have listened to endless podcast episodes about gut health and done my research, I learned so much within this past hour. And I think it really shows us to how passionate we are is that we could talk about this for hours. Just to close out in terms of really thing I want people to get out of this podcast other than like ways to improve their health is for them to see people pursuing their passion. So what are a few of the things you really love the most about your profession? And given the opportunity, do you think you would change it? And I know you said you kind of moved away from internal medicine into um, integrative gut health and all of that. So how did you really like hone in on your niche? I think, cause medicine is such a broad field. Agree. Um, I don't know. I think it's, it, it really kind of stemmed from like way back, like even from medical school, I just have always been really interested in nutrition and how it affects you as a person being someone who I was uh, like morbidly overweight, like morbidly obese as a teenager and lost a lot of weight and saw how it affected me physically, but mentally too. It kind of just, maybe that was like the, you know, the little like seed, right. The, the planted seed where it got me really interested. So I've always had like extreme interest in nutrition and how that affects us physically, but mentally. And so throughout medical school, you know, I really was interested, but then in internal medicine, I mean, internal medicine, it's kind of one of those things that encompasses everything. And so having practiced that for so many years and seeing so many conditions that to me could have been avoided, right. With preventive lifestyles just kind of made me even more passionate about really trying to help people, you know, live their best lives. And I know you're all about like finding your passion, right. And so that's what I would say, like, just see what you really like and what you're really good at. And like, don't worry about what like everyone's saying and like other people around you, we, we're all unique and we're all different. And we, you know, this is like the best thing about that is that we all have passions and kind of just hone in on your passion. So, and see what you're really good at and what you like to, to help people with. So that's kind of how I, I got to my point is I really want to help everyone achieve what I guess I've achieved in my life over the past, you know, 50 years. That's so. really incredible and really inspiring as someone that feels like I'm at the very, very beginning of my medical journey in terms of the schooling I'm still going to have to go through to get where you are. But thank you for that insight. Also, guys, I know you're all listening to this right now, but I really would love for you to check out her Instagram because I was shocked, Dr. Bashar, when you said that you were morbidly obese as a teenager because... Dr. Bashar is a mom and she looks great. She looks really, really young compared to what she has lived through and what she's done. So I guess that's the biggest testament to the fact that your preachings really work. They clearly work in your own life. And where can all of my sweet listeners find you and follow up with you? I love your infographics and all of the, the like helpful health tips that you've been sharing lately. 
Well, thank you so much. I really appreciate that feedback. I have my website um, from withinmedical.com, but I'm also on Instagram as Dr. Christine B. It's spelled out Dr. Christine and then B, my last name. Um, so that those are the really the two, the two main areas. Um, I just started on Clubhouse doing that. And I love that. It's it's kind of like Instagram, Instagram with sound, right? So that I've been doing a little bit too, but I would say mainly Instagram or my website. But thank you for asking. Amazing. Thank you so much for sharing your time and your insight with all of us. All of all I, lo- of her. I love doing this with you. I, I could talk for hours with you. Yes, this was so fun. This this made me really excited to continue to get more into the the practical and clinical basis of medicine cuz right now it all feels so technical, just a lot of enzymes and pathways which are like very fascinating how they work, but I'm I'm excited for it to be a little bit more applicable. I agree. So, I agree. And I, I think um a part like a huge part of like I always wonder that like what what is it? Like why do they do that in medical school? Like why do they give us all this um, you know, whatever like molecular first? One is like it's like to see who's really interested in medicine, who can like, you know, like stand the long haul. So anyone who's listening, like we've all been through that and we've all questioned, like, why do I need to know this? A lot of this stuff you'll never look at again, but a lot of this stuff is also stuff that like when you're doing research, for example, like what, what we did, like, I don't remember all these pathways, but having that basis, you know, from medical school, like it comes back to you. So that's really part of it. But it's also, it's almost like a survival of the fittest. I hate to say it, um, but like who can, who can withstand this, right? This long Especially in undergrad with the weed Absolutely. out classes. Yeah. Absolutely. And this is like, I mean, I think this is intentionally done is to weed out who's going to be able to survive this. So let's give them the really hard stuff first and then the fun stuff later. But it's, it's you know, it's like life, right? Like instant yeah. gratification is never good. So you kind of like delay, but yeah, I would say like anyone who's listening really, like we've all been through this and you know, there are a lot of people who love the basic sciences and, and this is where they're meant to be. But if Mm -hmm. you're not that person, don't be discouraged because this is something that is just, you know, one step, um, in a lot of other steps that are a lot better. So. That's, I, I really appreciate that. I needed to hear that because I'm going to spend the rest of the day with this textbook. I, I was looking at it last night and I was like, I cannot believe that I have read like almost 400 pages of a textbook. Like if you had told my 15 year old self that that's what I'd be doing in my early twenties, I wouldn't have believed you because I, you could not bring me to read a textbook in high school or college. I would find the information any other way. Right. It's but, funny, right? What you do. I know. And, and, yeah. and you're smart. you break it up, like break it up and it'll be yes. so much easier. So yeah. Good luck. Good luck with thank um, you. And uh, we'll talk soon. Thank you so much. Um, All of Dr. Bashar's information is going to be in the description of this episode. So if you needed any specific spellings to be able to check her out, um, that'll all be there. Thank you again so much for spending your morning with me. And I am so excited for all of our listeners to be able to implement all of this wonderful information into their lives. Thank you so much again for having me. You can find our Instagram page at allthingscononamor and follow for updates on new episodes. You can find me on Instagram at Stephanie Arnuk. Feel free to say hi. Share this episode with anyone you believe would benefit from this super interesting stuff. I am so grateful to have you here with me sharing your time and we'll see you on the next episode.